the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. they had multiple wives in the Old Testament because they were disobeying God. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Why didn't God, like, crush them for it? Why didn't He speak out more against it? Everything that mankind did in His sinfulness, just because God doesn't speak out against every single time doesn't mean He condones it because He already settled it in Genesis 2.24. So the whole multiple marriage thing, when people look at the Old Testament, they go, you know, how come, how come that was okay then? It was never okay. It was never okay then. It's not okay now. There are matters we deal with in our culture that the Bible may not directly address. As Pastor Gary will point out in today's message, an example of this is with polygamy. It isn't clearly labeled as sin in the Old Testament, but it doesn't align with God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. That needs to be our measure for everything we do in life. We don't need to look for loopholes to excuse sin, but we should be looking for ways we can glorify God by honoring His design. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Judges, chapter 8, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Verse 7, so Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to whip you with thorns when I come back. And then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. And so he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. It's like he's not getting any help. You know, even his own fellow Israelites are not giving bread to the army. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're hungry. But he can't seem to find help along the way. The people of Sukkot, the people of Penuel say, No, you haven't actually been victorious yet. We're not going to give you any bread. Verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them about 15,000. All who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Okay, and so this is the math. This is how we come to understand that the whole Midianite army of the east is 135,000. We have 15,000 who were still, you know, uh, alive and 120 who have who have perished. Verse 11 says, Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogibah, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And when Zebah 
and Zalmunna fled. He pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zebah and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Okay, so he's got now just these two kings who are left. This is all part of warfare. I know this, you know some of the Bible is difficult when you read all the bloodshed, but this is this is the way it went down. Verse thirteen. And then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, seventy-seven men. And then he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot. He's going to take them to school. That's what that, that's what that, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you a lesson here. He taught them. And then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So he, he makes good on his promise. Like, you guys, you wouldn't even help your brothers with bread. I'm coming back. And he comes back. You know, as the judge of Israel, he judges them in this way. And verse 18, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And then he said, this is Gideon, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had left, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Okay, so what we find out in this conversation, he's got these two Midianite kings as prisoners of war now. He's taken them captive. And he, and he says, tell me again, who were those people you killed in Tabor? Now, they probably didn't know that they were Gideon's brothers. But when they say, well, they were, you know, they look like you. And, uh, and they could pass for sons of a king. Then Gideon springs it on him and says, yeah, those guys you killed were my brothers. So there's no other previous reference to this other than right here. And, and so Gideon wanted these two Midianite kings to admit they had killed his brothers. Now, Gideon does something here that, uh, you know, is troubling. But look at, at verse uh, 20. And he said to Jather, his firstborn. So this, Gideon turns to his firstborn son. And he says, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Now, you know, I, I suppose, you know, back in these days, this is an opportunity for, you know, dad to get their son to uh, show themselves as war ready. And uh, you can be a hero right here and put a sword into the enemy kings. But this guy's a youth. We don't know how old he is, but um, he refuses to do it. And so then those Midianite kings taunt Gideon a little bit. The next verse, verse 21, so Zeba and Zalmunna say, said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And so Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. So the Midianites are gone now. This is the end. And uh, he, he puts the sword to them. And, of course, you know, God is really the one who turned the Midianites on themselves, and God's the one who brought about this victory. Sadly, I wish it weren't so, but uh, a lot of times you see in the Bible these leaders, and you see in modern times too, you see these leaders who are on a good track, they're, they're serving God, they're doing well, and then they take a left turn. And that's what's going to happen here with Gideon. He is going to make an idol 
What we find about Gideon is, to be honest, he seems to be a man who fares better during adversity than he does during success. And unfortunately, that's true for a lot of people. It's like, you know, when you're going through adversity, kind of referring back to comments I made earlier in the study, when you're going through adversity, it it really presses you closer to the Lord. Not always. Some people through adversity run from God. But a lot of times, when you're going through adversity, it presses you into the Lord. When Gideon was just threshing wheat in a wine press because the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites, and Gideon is just like, I don't really want to be a leader. You know, he's just surviving. He's just clinging to God. He's, you know, he sees the Midianites, the oppression against his fellow Israelites, including himself and his own family, and that adversity has caused him to really press into God and um, and to be this reluctant leader that God has raised up. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll be a judge, and I'll be this military leader. Okay, God, I'll do this. And you get this sense that he's just, you know, he's really close to the Lord during this time. I mean, the Lord appears to him, and he, and he, and he does this whole testing of God's will with the whole fleece thing and all of that. So he's close to the Lord. But unfortunately, what tends to happen sometimes is then we get, you know, successful, and successful in this context is he's defeated the armies, the Israelites love him. He's this, you know, powerful leader. Now he has proven himself um, to have some pretty good street cred at this point. Now, you know, you've successfully with God's help and God's guidance defeated this oppressive army. I mean, the nation loves you now. His poll, his poll numbers were sky high. You know what I'm saying to you? And, and yet during this successful time, he gets lazy. And, and what we're going to read here is he makes this idol and it's a strange idol. I want you to read further with me. So verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Okay, so they love him. But Gideon said to them, now, to his credit, look what he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So to his credit, he's like, I'm not going to be your king because God is king. Unfortunately, what we're going to see here is that even though Gideon says, I don't want to be your king, he's going to act like one. And, and, I'll, and I'll show you at the end of the chapter exactly, we'll summarize what we're, what we're reading here. Verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings, the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So, Ishmaelites is another term for the Midianites. So the Midianites, you know, had these golden earrings. Um, you know, we, we think things are new fads. Look, guys wearing earrings have been going on for thousands of years. It's nothing new, okay? The Ishmaelites were, you know, like pretty decked out with, you know, gold earrings. And, and so when the Israelites, you know, killed or the Midianites killed themselves, um, Midianites slash Ishmaelites, then as plunder, the Israelites soldiers went around pulling the earrings off of all the Ishmaelite soldiers. So they have all these gold earrings. And Gideon, now this is going to be one of the first things that shows, even though he says, I don't want to be your king, he's acting like one. He says, I want your gold. Give me your plunder. So they spread out a garment. They answer, we gladly will. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. 
Now, you know, listen, you got 120,000, another 15,000, you got 135,000 soldiers. I don't know if all of them were wearing gold earrings. That's a lot of gold earrings. All right? So now look, the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. All right, that's roughly 43, 44 pounds of gold earrings. That's a lot of earrings. So I did some math because gold was trading at like $1,816 an ounce and today, and so uh, I just rounded it off just 1800 bucks an ounce. This would be the equivalent of $1.3 million today. All right? So they're throwing in plunder. The value of today in today's dollars, $1.3 million. And they throw in, notice this, 1,700 shekels of gold besides... Not to mention the crescent ornaments, okay? They had these moon crescents, okay? It's very interesting. Um, not much has changed from the Middle East in terms of symbols, the crescent moon, okay? Pendants, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. Let me say something. You know you've got a lot of money when your camel wears bling. Do you know what I'm saying to you? The Midianites had camels, and so, you know, the Israelites are like, let's take all this off. Let's take all this off the camel's necks. That's, that's, all of this is in addition to, to the $1.3 million worth of gold earrings. Quite a plunder. But now here's verse 27. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. In other words, they prostituted themselves. They committed spiritual adultery. They, they, they weren't loving the Lord. They were loving this idol. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. The Hebrew word for snare is mokesh. And it, and it, it literally uh, translates a noose that they would use for uh, trapping animals. And that's, so picture this. This has captured their hearts. They've been trapped by this idol. Now, again, the reference is to an ephod. It says in verse 27, then Gideon made an ephod uh, with this gold. Now, this is a strange thing. Um, here's what an ephod is. An ephod uh, was a colorful apron-like vestment worn by the high priest and designed according to God's instructions in Exodus chapter 28. And it was, it was, you know, this colorful thing. It was linen. It was a linen apron-like robe that the priest would wear as part of his vestments. And on top of it would be this, the breastplate with the 12 different stones and the urim and the thummim would be inside the breastplate. That was a whole other Bible study to all of the garb that the high priest would wear. But, but this is what Gideon fashions out of gold. He makes a golden ephod. So he's, he's acting here in like a priestly role. Now it doesn't say that he wears it. It says that they worship it. So it's like, you know, you're making a garment out of gold and then now you're worshiping it. It's become an idol. This is so tragic. It's like you've just had this victory. God has given you this great victory. And what's the first thing you do, Gideon? Well, you say, well, I don't really want to be your king. But now you're acting like a king because you're getting all their gold. And then you act like a priest because you're making an ephod. And now people are worshiping this. So you've just led people into idolatry. So it's very sad here how Gideon makes this left turn when success goes to his head. Again, he seemed to handle adversity better than he did success. And as part of his 
leadership here, he makes this thing that becomes a snare, becomes a noose for trapping people's hearts. And thus, verse 28, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. The country was quiet. The Hebrew is shachat, and it means they had rest. So they had peace. 40 years. And then, verse 29, Jeroboam, which is another name for Gideon, and, and might it's interesting how it kind of goes back and forth, Gideon, Jeroboam. Jeroboam means let Baal contend. It was the nickname that he was given when he destroyed his father's altars to Baal. That was a good thing. Even though the townspeople wanted to kill Gideon for it, Gideon honored God by killing, by not killing, by, by uh, wrecking his father's idol, his altar to, to Baal. So Gideon gets this nickname, Jeroboam, And I think it's a play on words here because the guy who wrecked his father's altar to a false god has himself built an idol out of this gold in making this ephod and leading the people into idolatry. How ironic, how tragic. Verse 29, then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Verse 30, Gideon had 70 sons. Giddy up Gideon, you know what I'm saying to you? Seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had, this is not biblical, but this is again tragic, he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now, Abimelech translates in Hebrew, my father is king. It's from two Hebrew words, Abba, meaning father, and Melech, meaning king. So he names his kid, my son is king, my father is king. I don't want to be your king. But I'm going to name this kid, my father is king. All right? So you see all these things. We're going to string it together in a moment. But, but look, you do see polygamy throughout the Old Testament. God intended marriage to be monogamous. Because in Genesis 2.24... For this cause shall a man leave his father and a mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was God's original design, his only intent. Jesus repeats, he quotes Genesis 2 in Matthew 19 and in Mark chapter 10. Paul also uh, quotes Genesis 2.24 in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 5. So we see it in the Old Testament as God's original design for marriage. We see it in the New Testament. I was watching this thing on, uh, on, on YouTube the other day about this Muslim imam was talking about how the Bible, he was trying to justify uh, the um, Muslim practice of multiple wives in, in some uh, countries. And uh, he said, well, the, you know, the Bible doesn't teach. He, so he talked about the Quran. He talked about Hindu uh, sacred texts. And he talked about the Bible. And he said, well, the Bible doesn't say that it's only supposed to be two people either. And I'm like, I wanted to scream. I was screaming at the TV. I was like, yes, it does. It says it in Genesis 2.24. Jesus reinforced it by quoting it in Matthew 19 and quoting it in uh, Mark chapter 10. Paul quotes it twice in the New Testament. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. How come they had multiple wives in the Old Testament? Because they were disobeying God. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Why didn't God, like, crush him for it? Why didn't he speak out more against it? Everything that mankind did in his sinfulness... Just because God doesn't speak out against every single time doesn't mean he condones it, because he already settled it in Genesis 2.24. 
So the whole multiple marriage thing, when people look at the Old Testament, they go, you know, how come, how come that was okay then? It was never okay. It was never okay then. It was, it's not okay now. Marriage is to be between a man and a woman, two individuals joining together as one flesh. So Gideon here is not only engaging in idolatry, he's engaging in adultery. I mean, it, it's just, it's just tragic to see how at the end of his life here, uh, all that is going on. And it's, and, he, and it says then in verse 32, now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizarites. So before I read the, the last paragraph here, here's, here's the summary of of Gideon's life. He didn't want to be their king, but he acted like one. He asks for their gold, he acquires a harem, and he names one of his sons, my dad is king. <laughs> so in other words, here's, here's the lesson. Talk is cheap. You can say all day long uh, what you're about, but it really needs to be proven by your actions. And sadly, uh, Gideon, the tail end of his life, um, did not reflect a man who was walking in, um, in serious relationship with the Lord his God. Verse 33, so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. Here we go. Here's the cycle of sin. Forty years of peace. Gideon's dead. Now we start worshiping the Baals again. And they made... Baal Berith, their God. Baal Berith in Hebrew translates Lord of the Covenant. Just one of the many Baals. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam Gideon in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So they get back in this cycle and um, and uh, next week we look into chapter nine. Abimelech, this guy, this son that is born to Gideon by Gideon's concubine, is going to be trouble. He was a man who was reluctant, but he obeyed God and he served God. And you see some weaknesses in his life near the end here. Now, what I'm about to say is not in any way to make excuses for his weaknesses or any of our weaknesses. But the truth is, he's a man just like all of us. We are subject to temptation. We are subject to failing. We are subject to sin. And what I love about Gideon's life is that even though he had these issues near the end of his life, he still gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, in the great hall of faith. That speaks to me. Because God doesn't just dismiss us. He knows our weaknesses. He is patient with us. He is forgiving. He is merciful. And Gideon, despite his shortcomings, still made it into the Hebrew hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So, Perhaps you can look at some things in your life that you're not proud of and think, you know, maybe my life is ruined because of some of these mistakes I've made. No, it's not. Because God is the great redeemer. And God is the one who uses broken people for his good purposes. What he wants from us is to come to him, to repent, tell him we're sorry, and then 
ask him in his timing and in his ways to still use broken people like Gideon, as God did, and as God still does with us. Our days are sometimes filled with nonstop movement, aren't they? The pastors, staff, and community here at Cornerstone Connection don't want you to miss out on nuggets of wisdom from God's Word. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can connect with us from anywhere. Interested in hearing more? Go to cornerstoneconnection.cc, where Pastor Gary Hamrick has more audio messages for you to tune into. Scroll down until you see the space that says Teaching Library. Once there, we've made it as simple as possible to search by topic, speaker, or book. We pray that you'll be uplifted and encouraged in your walk with Jesus. That website again is cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love for you to stop by. We have Sunday services at 8.30, 10, and 11.45. Is the middle of your week more free? Come join us on Wednesday evenings then at 7. Were you blessed by what you heard today? Would you consider donating some of your resources? If so, it's pretty simple. You can use our mobile app or click on the Give Now tab found at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we look forward to our next time together right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.